Well, good morning, Mars Hill. Good to see you all, and good to see you if you're streaming from home. By faith, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. And what we've seen in the Gospel of John for years is what it feels like, is exactly how that is. How is it that we can be a chosen people, a people for God's own possession? How is it that we are taken from darkness into marvelous light? How is it that we can proclaim the excellencies through evangelism, discipleship? John has explained all of that to us. And here, with these last four verses, we close our time in the Gospel of John. John leaves us a couple of things as he ends his gospel story. Two in particular, well, I guess that is a couple. (laughs) Two in particular. First, he sets an example for what it is that we ought to do as witnesses bearing testimony of Christ. And second, he draws our attention to the fact that Jesus did a lot of other things, but he only selected seven miracles in particular to give us so that they might produce in us faith, a faith that leads to life. And so now that we've come to the end of John's gospel, there's a lot of things that we could do at this point, right? We could kind of do the Bible Project overview, the 30,000-foot overview. We could, you know, like, hey, here are three of my favorite things about the book of John. What about you? Um, there's a lot of ways that you can end uh, a sermon series, especially in a book or a gospel. But I thought what we ought to do is just to end it the way that John ended it, to, to glean from these last few words what the Spirit intends for us to exit John with. And really, the exit of John is the beginning of something new, right? It's the, the beginning of a a thicker or greater understanding of our life in relationship to faith in the person and work of Christ. And so with that being said, let's reread John's closing words in his gospel here. Remember, in the context here, John is following Peter and Jesus in a private conversation. Jesus has just informed Peter of a pretty serious thing coming in his future. Basically, he tells Peter, you're going to die kind of like how I died in crucifixion. And Peter, um, always being a comparer, looks around and sees that John's following them and says, well, if I'm going to die like you, Jesus, what about this guy? And Jesus tells Peter, if it's my will that he, being John, remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Those are the last words of Christ in John's gospel. John then picks up the narration. He says, this is the disciple, verse 24, who is bearing witness about these things, as in John, who has written these things that we may know, or that we know, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. And there, the gospel ends. So, Really, what John is doing here is he's concluding his entire narrative of Jesus' personal work with three statements. First, notice John says that he is bearing witness, as in he's presently testifying of Christ. 
when John wrote his gospel, he's very likely pretty old. And church historians estimate that John could have been upwards of 90s, in his 90s, when he passed away, which is it's just an incredible achievement today, let alone 2,000 years ago. And really from that little, that little tiny statement that he's presently bearing witness to Christ, uh, what an encouragement for those of us who are later in our years, that even at the twilight of his life, he's still testifying of Christ. He's still being a disciple maker. He's still evangelizing. Another thing John says is that he has written these things in specific. The things that he's talking about are the person and work, or episodes relating to the person and work of Christ. And in specific, I believe the signs that point to what Jesus is and, and who he is. And then third, he says that we know that Christ's testimony is true. In other words, that all the apostles and all the disciples of the apostles agree here. Everything Jesus taught, he said, he did, all points to truth. And so what John wants to do is he wants to show us that our faith is not merely an individualized thing, but that we live in faith in community as well. So I believe in a community where we believe, we testify, we witness, we know that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life as we have just sung. In other words, John's individual faith, he says here, was emboldened by the things he told us about Jesus, and that those things, especially the miracles, have also emboldened a whole community of faith. And perhaps this morning, it can embolden our community of faith as well. You see, John and his fellow apostles and all the disciples, they had warrant to believe in Jesus and to have their faith emboldened. The proof, John says, is in the things that Jesus did. He said this earlier, well, yeah, earlier in, in chapter 20, in verse 25, which sounds familiar. He says, now there are many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So he ends 20 and 21 in a similar way. But, but what's important about 20 is, in 21, it seems like John is saying, like, Jesus did a lot more. John here says he did specifically many other things. So there's a works, episodes, moments of Jesus' life. We think of uh, his healings, his, his, uh, his, his miracles, right? In other words, John could not record everything Jesus did and said, even if he wanted to. It's something that he's, he's trying to tell us. But really, in reality, he did not want to record everything. Even though John had plenty of material to write a longer gospel, he did not. Right? John could have written episodes 4, 5, and 6, and then went back and did a prequel series of episodes 1, 2, and 3, and then later did a, a sequel series of 7, 8, and 9, and then started his own streaming business, and then started streaming like subplots of Jesus' life, and just rolled this train forever. Right? Because he had enough material, he says, no, I made one film of Christ's life for a reason. Why is that? Why won't he give us all of the other things? Well, he's told us in chapter 20 that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these things, these signs, these miracles in specific, there it is. These signs are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So even though Jesus did many other signs, so many that the whole world would run out of space if they were all to be recorded, John chose a small sampling so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by that faith we would have eternal life. So there, that's kind of where I want to focus our time this morning. I want to look at John's example as a witness in his twilight years, but I also want to consider deeply what John is saying about the importance of the signs that he did record in the gospel. So we are kind of going to go back all the way through the gospel of John to look at these mile markers of the different signs that Jesus performed and how that plays into our faith and how that faith plays into eternal life. So let's first look at John's individual faith as someone who is bearing witness about Christ and see what the Holy Spirit has for, for us to learn this morning. He writes that this disciple is the one who is bearing witness about these things. In other words, John's an individual person who bears witness to Jesus. And, and I think the word to, to bear witness, we can misunderstand it um, because to bear means a lot of things in English, right? Well, bear means something completely different to bear, so go figure that. People are like, English is a hard language to learn it is, and I apologize for whoever it is. Bear can be something you get mauled by in the woods, or it means to pick something up, right? To bear, in, in Galatians, Paul uses it in terms of carrying one another's burdens, right? You ought to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if we think about to bear as in we're bearing a testimony, we're bearing witness to Christ. It's almost like we have this thing that we're holding and then we show people, we walk around and, and we give it to them. It's something that we contain, but it's outside of us. It's something that we have and we hold and we, we hold it dear, but it's not quite personal to us. But the word that John uses here is not communicating merely that you're relaying a story or a set of facts. It's less reporting and more recalling and reflecting and retelling. A reporter's job is to observe as a third party certain events and then relay those events as factually as possible to the public. That's not exactly what John is saying he's doing. When we recount something, what we're doing is we're drawing on our personal experience of those episodes, so we're putting ourselves in that story as well. That is what John is telling us he's doing. As a witness, the word in Greek is martyreo, which is the way that we get our word for martyr. A martyr is somebody whose identity is so wrapped up in Christ that they cannot deny him, even on pain of death. It's just who I am. I cannot separate myself from Christ. The story of God's redemption is so intertwined in the story of my own life, they are inseparable. If that means death comes, then so be it, right? That's what we think of when we think of the word martyr, and that's the same type of thought that John has here in his self-description of how he's bearing witness about how he's being a martyr of Christ. It's more personal than merely relaying facts or a story. It means to affirm something that you've seen or heard or experienced. 
In other words, John is not saying, Jesus did these great things and I'm going to tell you about them. He's saying, Jesus did these great things to me and I'm going to tell you about them and how it changed me. You see the distinction? It's a big difference between a biography and an autobiography, isn't there? A biography is a work written by somebody who is not the subject of the book, doesn't necessarily have to have a relationship with the subject of the book, and is expected to present their biography in you know, the most factual way possible. But a biographer does not have to have a meaningful or deep or personal connection with the person they're writing about. An autobiography is a work written by somebody by themselves. So obviously the author is deeply and intimately aware of the subject of the book because the book is about them. I explain biography and autobiography like we're in third grade English again <laughs> for this reason. When it comes to evangelism, Christians aren't sharing a biography of Christ alone, but we're also sharing our autobiography of his work in our life. Okay, there are two books that we bring to people in evangelism. Book number one is the biography of Christ. Have you read the Gospel of John? Book number two is the autobiography of my salvation. Here is how Jesus saved me. Here's how the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me. Here's how I know the promises of God are true. Now, sharing the gospel in its most you know, basic sense is sufficient to save. That's what Paul says in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. But John, and Paul, by his own examples, we'll see here shortly, invites us to highlight and underline the glory of the gospel by placing ourselves in the story of redemptive history when we bear witness to what God has done and what he is doing. So it's not just that Christ saves, it's also, and Christ saved me. It's not just that God is redeeming his people, it's also, and God has redeemed me as his people. Here's how. Let me share that story. So when you share the story of Christ... Maybe one of the questions we can ask here now that we're, end, you know, we're at the end of the story of Christ, according to John, do you include your own story? Is your story a part of your sharing and witnessing and testifying of Christ? Paul blends the gospel and his own redemptive story uh, together masterfully, beautifully. Uh, he, he does often in his letters, and I think probably one of the most obvious examples I could think of is the, the, his, in, during his, one of his letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy, he tells his you know, young protege that the gospel saves, I know it does because I was saved and I was the chief among sinners. You've heard that language before. So you see what he's doing is he's presenting the gospel, but he's also including how the gospel affects him. I think this is such an important point um, that I went, I, I have that passage. It's 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, if you're interested. And what I wanted to do is I asked the question, what if Paul had stripped his autobiography from his presentation of gospel truth in that passage? How would that change the text? And it's really interesting because there's so much truth that's still present, obviously present, but it loses its, its weight uh, it, it, it's not as 
um, immediate or as, as personal as it is when you read it the way that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to do. So I want to do an experiment. I want to show you kind of what I did to, to, to make this point clear. Uh, this passage, which is on the screen, is not a passage, okay? It is not 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, because I've stripped Paul's autobiography from it. It's not the Bible, in parentheses, just to be clear, okay? So let's read this as if Paul had not included himself in this gospel presentation. Thank him who gives strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, who gives mercy in ignorant unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflows with faith and love in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ displays his perfect patience to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Question, is there truth there? Oh yeah, there's a lot of truth there. Is the gospel being articulated there? Yeah. This is a biography, essentially, of what God is doing, how he's doing it, and why he's doing it. But the missing element, Paul's autobiography, makes it feel different, doesn't it? Here is what the Spirit inspired Paul to write. I've reinserted the parts that we took out to kind of see the difference, and I've highlighted them in yellow so that you can see on the screen um, the, 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 the parts of Paul that are appearing in this gospel presentation. Let me read it again. This is scripture, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Is there truth here? Yeah, of course. Which one of these two is weightier, is more compelling, is more forthright, is more honest, more wrong in condition before the gospel? Which one is more inspiring? I think the obvious answer is the second. And I know that's the obvious answer because that's the one that the Spirit inspired for us to have in Scripture. So I say all this to say, I think we follow Paul and John's example here. That sharing how the gospel saves people means sharing how the gospel saved you. That's what it means to be a witness of Christ. It's not merely just relaying information to people. It's not merely making a presentation of the gospel or sharing the gospel. It's also then coming behind and explaining how that gospel message saved you. Sharing how the gospel saves people means sharing how the gospel saves you too. Let us be witnesses of Christ as Paul and John are. Okay, that's the first thing I think we see in the last part of this text. Here's the second thing. 
these things, these signs, I selected these in particular. This disciple who has written these things. There's a lot of other things that Jesus did, and the world couldn't contain all the books that would be written if we recorded all of them. So John here is confessing, hey, I didn't record everything that happened for two reasons. First, the world would end out of, run out of ink, and then we'd run out of paper, and there'd be no forests. Besides, there would be no libraries to hold the books, so it would be fruitless, right? But second, John admittedly says, you know what? I'm not even interested in recording all of the other things that Jesus did. In fact, pound for pound, John does not write most of the famous miracles that Jesus did. I looked at the other Gospels, and I came up with this list. He did not record the miracles of calming the storm, finding or having Peter find the coin in the fish's mouth, cursing the fig tree and having it wither, healing man with leprosy, healing Roman centurion servant, healing Peter's mother-in-law, exercising demons. Did you notice that? Not once. Healing a man with palsy, healing two blind men, healing the Canaanite woman's daughter, healing the crippled woman, resurrecting Jairus' daughter, and resurrecting the widow's son at Nain. That's a lot of stuff that John left out. And a skeptic might say, well, that's probably because John was unaware of it, so maybe he's making his stuff up, or he didn't actually know the other disciples. But John says, time out, guy. I know those other things happen. <laughs> I was there. I chose not to include them for a reason, and I chose to include seven miracles specifically for a purpose. And he tells us this in John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What are these written that he's talking about? These signs. He only gives seven signs of Jesus in his gospel. Turning water into wine, healing the official son, healing the paralytic, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing man born blind, resurrecting Lazarus. And I believe there's an eighth sign here, Christ's own resurrection. So the resurrection of Lazarus was actually a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. Have you ever thought why these and not the others? What is it about these signs and the order in which they are presented to us that communicates something of faith that leads to eternal life? In other words, why these, why in this order, and why not the others? If we take John at his word, he says, these in this order and not the others, so that you might have faith. So there's real value in asking that question and understanding why it is that John selected these, not others, and put these in this uh, order. So what I want to do, and really end John, is uh, look at all of these signs, these miracles in their order, and see how they fit together and actually how if you just take these miracles alone and strip everything out of John's gospel, they still communicate the story of the gospel in an incredible way. Now, I'll be honest. The next 20 or so minutes when we go through this will definitely feel at some points like I have a giant cork board with all of these pictures and the string going across, and I'm like disheveled with my hair everywhere. Just, just stay with me. Just stay with me. But because we're going to go deep here, right? So scuba gear check. We're good to go. This is a moment I think we're going to worship the Lord with all of our mind. Okay, so, so stay with me. 
uh, famous pastor says, are you tracking? You track with me? Um, stay with me as we go through this because I think it's really important and it demonstrates for us the brilliance, the beauty, uh, and the intelligence and the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit uh, behind as the author of this gospel. Okay, with all that said, let's jump into these miracles. We have to frame them in the way that John has been framing Jesus' redemptive work. He's been framing Christ's atonement and resurrection as the inauguration of a new creation, as an inauguration of a new thing that God is doing with a new people. And we, we saw this all the way at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And that reminds us of the beginning, beginning, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says God's doing a new thing with a new creation. The God who created the heavens and the earth was Jesus, who is both with and is God himself. And just as God later in the Old Testament story dwelt in the presence of his people in the tabernacle, John tells us how Jesus, the true tabernacle of God, came and dwelt among us. That word is tabernacle. You remember these types of things? There's a bunch of them that we saw. Well, I think this continues in the stories of the miracles as well. And it does so with just a few, just these seven. John really likes sevens. Like seven is his favorite number, apparently. I don't know if you have a favorite number, but John's is seven. And I say that because you start to see seven everywhere. Obviously, in the Bible, seven is the number of completion or perfection. For example, in the first chapter alone, Jesus is given seven incredible titles. The Lamb of God, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus, you're like, well, that's his name, right? Yes, but Jesus means Yeshua, God who saves, right? So the God who saves from Nazareth. Uh, Rabbi, King of Israel, Son of God, Son of Man. If those seven things about Jesus are true, then when Jesus makes incredible statements about himself, we can believe them. John gives us seven incredible statements of Christ. I am the bread of life, light of the world, door of the sheep, resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, and the true vine. John, in his gospel, has set up for us incredible things about him, incredible statements from him, and the question that's rolling around in the back of our minds is, why should we believe those two sets of sevens are true? The answer is in the set of seven miracles that John records and in their specific order. Water into wine, healing of the official son, healing the paralytic, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, resurrecting Lazarus, and then of course, an eighth, Christ's own resurrection. This first miracle, to support John's claims, to support the I am statements, to support the, the seven titles, begins with the first miracle, turning water into wine, John 2, 1 through 11. We talked earlier when we presented this, or we, we talked about this like two years ago, uh, how there is a deep connection and correlation between the miracle of turning water into wine and what happened to Egypt in the Nile when God cursed the river and turned it to blood. Remember, Israel is under slavery in Egypt. They groan for freedom. God hears them. Moses is selected by God and commanded to demand from Pharaoh Israel's release, but Pharaoh resists, so God begins a series of curses on Egypt that brings death and sorrow. And the first curse, God has Moses approach Pharaoh while Pharaoh is standing near or in the Nile, and Moses brings his staff, 
And he says to, Pho- he says to Pharaoh, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will sink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. I would too. Who would like to drink water blood? There is a curse, a very serious curse that has plagued the land. I want us to notice three things from this passage. First, the water in the Nile turns to blood. That's the most obvious. Second, the water kills life. Fish in the Nile will die. And third, the people grew weary of drinking the water. This source of life that formerly gave them joy is now causing them heartache and pain and suffering. In other words, the clear water of the Nile turns to a deep crimson red, and people don't like the water. There is no joy where there formerly was. The Nile into blood, clear water into crimson, joy into sorrow. Let's think about that in the form of this little drop icon here. Now import this story to the first miracle. Remember, Jesus is in Galilee. He's going to a wedding at Cana. It's cause for celebration and joy. There's an anticipation of new life as the two, uh, the, the guy and the gal come together and, and produce children and a family. But sadly, in the midst of the celebration, the wine runs out. So at the request of Mary, Jesus instructs his disciples with these words, fill the purification jars and take them to the host. And by the time those water jars get to the host, something happens to them. The host reaches in, drinks some of it, and says this, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And the disciples are probably like, three seconds ago, that was water. So this is the first miracle that John records. Jesus miraculously turns water into wine. In other words, there's a correlation here between the Old and the New Testament, between what God did and what he is now doing. The clear water of the purification jars turned a deep crimson red that brought joy, whereas the people in Egypt had water that turned a deep crimson red that brought sorrow. You see the correlation, the connection? Then comes miracle two, the healing of the official son, John 4, 46 through 54. This also has a connection back to Egypt, back to the Passover episode with the death of an official's son. We know how Pharaoh's story continued after the Nile. He was a tyrant. He refused to liberate God's people. And so more and more plagues cursed Egypt. God's wrath was on full display. Egypt experienced eight more curses. There are frogs and gnats and flies and diseased livestock and boils and hail plus fire from heaven and locusts in darkness, but still Pharaoh refused to let the people go. That is, until one final curse occurred. Let me read for you from Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, at about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, the official of officials, the highest official in the land of Egypt, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who stands behind the the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such such as there has never been nor ever will again. So in addition to water turning into blood and eight other plagues that followed, the final curse of God on Egypt was the death of an official's son. 
And it's this death of a son that finally moves Pharaoh so that he would relent and allows Israel to go. In other words, the death of an official son secured Israel's liberation. Import that story into miracle number two. Jesus is again in Galilee, again in Canaan. A government official from Capernaum nearby hears that Jesus is in Galilee and seeks him out. Why? Because this official's son is sick, quote, to the point of death, John 4, 47. The official finds Jesus, pleads with him by faith, heal my son, and here's what Jesus says, go, your son will live. And his son does. Unlike Pharaoh, the official son who's, who's or the officials, unlike Pharaoh, the official whose son died, the official from Capernaum's son lived. It is an inversion of what occurred in Egypt all those years ago. Do you see a pattern? There are similarities and differences making a point between two episodes from the Old Testament and two episodes in Christ's life in these miracles. And I believe John has selected these two miracles First, for a reason. It's no coincidence that the first curse on Egypt was the Nile turning into blood, and the last curse on Egypt was the death of an official son. And it's likewise no coincidence that the first miracle of Christ was turning water into wine, and the second miracle of Christ was healing an official son to prevent death. John is saying something very important here, and it's this. Long ago, God cursed Egypt by his wrath to liberate his people from slavery. But now, in Christ, God is blessing the world by diverting his wrath onto his son to liberate his people from sin. All of Egypt's curses occurred between water turning into blood and the death of the official son. And that curse on Egypt led to the liberation of God's people. But now... Jesus is the one who is taking the wrath on himself. Not Egypt, but God's own son. And by doing so, he's reversing sorrow into joy, water into wine, and he's reversing a curse that leads to death, healing the official son. And this reversal is leading to the liberation of God's people from a greater tyrant, Satan. You see, John is telling us Christ is taking on God's wrath himself so that he might liberate us. Christ is shedding his blood and his water. How did John describe that last moment with the Roman soldier piercing Christ's side? What came out? Both blood and water. The Son of God will die so that sons and daughters of God may live question, though, is how is he going to do it? John continues to answer this question in the next few, or the next two uh, miracles in specific. See, centuries after Exodus, God promised his people, you know, I'm going to do a new thing in the future. I'm going to come to you personally, and I'm going to save my people in a way that's never been done before, nor can it ever be topped. And one of the places, and one of the most prominent places that that God makes this promise is in Isaiah 35. And with the promise, and this is really important, he gives us things to look out for. 
signs that we should be looking out for that God is fulfilling the promise he made to come personally and liberate us from sin. In verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 35, we read, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So God is personally coming to save his people. Well, how do we know this is going to happen? What sign should we be looking out for? Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So the evidence that God is doing a new thing, that he's staying true to the promise that he made to Israel, would be when he would come personally, and among other things, paralytics and blind people will start to walk and start to see. The lame man will leap like a deer, the eyes of the blind will be open. Miracle number three. Jesus heals the paralytic, John 5, 1 through 15. He's in Jerusalem, he's at a pool called Bethesda, and there he found a lame man, says the Bible, a paralyzed man, who had been paralyzed for 38 years. It's a long time to be paralyzed, probably most of his life. Jesus had compassion, and with one mere command, he said, get up, take your bed, and walk. And the paralyzed guy did it. And I can't imagine that he was not filled with joy at being healed. I can't imagine after 38 years of sitting down there, he would have like stood up and said, hold my mat. Thanks, Jesus. I'm going to tell my mom about this. I'm sure that guy was dancing. I'm sure that guy was skipping and running or jogging. I would jog. I'm sure he leapt like a deer for joy. And then something similar happened to another man at a later part in the gospel. This is the sixth miracle. Jesus heals a man born blind, John 9 through, or 9, 1 through 7. He's in Jerusalem again. He's leaving the temple. That's Jesus. And then he finds a blind man who had been blind since birth. And he anoints the blind man's eyes with a mixture. And he merely commands, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. He does. And the man's eyes were opened. He gained his sight. The eyes of the blind were opened. You see, John selects these two miracles for a reason. The healing of the paralytic man, miracle three, and the healing of the blind man, miracle six, to answer the question that we asked, how will God save his people? The answer, by fulfilling his promise in Isaiah. In other words, to personally come. Not to just do it at a distance, but to come personally, in person, and to heal the physically oppressed and thereby staying true to God's promises of redemption and recreation and renewal. But that warrants another question. If God is coming in person to do this, how in the world is it Jesus? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Is not Jesus Joseph the carpenter's son? Who is this Jesus to do these things? Well, miracles four and five answer that question for us. Miracle number four is Jesus multiplying loaves and fishes to feed the 4,000, John 6, 4 through, 5, 4 through 14, or 5 through 14. Remember, big crowd is following Jesus' teaching. They're on their way to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage. They get really hungry, and they have nothing to eat. So Jesus gets five loaves and two fishes and multiplies them miraculously, so much so that after everybody had eaten and they were filled, 12 baskets of leftovers showed up. Just like the Hebrews who ate 
bread, manna from heaven in their wanderings of the wilderness in between Egypt and the promised land. So, Jesus said, he is the bread of life that is descended from heaven to feed the world. In this miracle, Jesus makes a proclamation of his divinity. The reason I can stay true to God's promises and heal people is because I'm God. I have command over creation. I can turn loaves and fishes into many loaves and fishes without adding anything but my own power. But John knows some people might be like, well, maybe God is working through Jesus, but Jesus isn't actually God. Because we've already seen in the Old Testament that there was a prophet who multiplied food. So maybe Jesus is just like a really great prophet, but he's not God himself. John says, time out, I'm not done. Immediately after miracle four is miracle five. Jesus walking on water in the storm. John 6, 16 through 24. Remember the disciples got in their boat. They got out on the Sea of Galilee. A storm came. It was at nighttime. They were being tossed around by the waves. And miraculously, Jesus appeared on the water in the waves, just walking around on the lake like you do. And in the midst of this fear and anxiety and darkness and chaos, the first thing he does, does is he speaks peace over the disciples. It is I. Do not be afraid. You see, Jesus was less like Moses who parted the water to walk through chaos and more like the ark of Noah who stayed atop it. Why can he have that position? How can he have that position if he's merely a man? You see, Jesus can do these things in creation because he created it. We cannot multiply loaves and fishes, only the one who created them can. And we cannot walk on water, only the one who created water can. So what John is doing is he's verifying that, first, Jesus has come to take God's wrath on himself by his death. Second, God is staying true to his promise to heal his people personally. And third, it's not merely God working through Jesus, but that personally part of Isaiah you're supposed to take that literally. Jesus himself is God who heals, the God who takes his wrath on us for us. In other words, Christ alone can take on God's wrath himself, which leads to liberation and the healing promised in Isaiah, because he is God. And any other person that would try would succumb to the wrath of God. No one else can stand up to it except for Christ. So one final question remains then. How exactly will Christ do all this? The answer is by defeating sin's penalty once and for all. And what is the penalty for sin? Death. Miracle 7. Resurrecting Lazarus, John 11, 1 through 45. It is no mistake and it is not coincidence that the last miracle that John records of Jesus' earthly ministry is the resurrection of Lazarus. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He hears news about Lazarus' illness, but he delays his coming to meet him. By the time he gets to Lazarus, Lazarus had died. He weeps with Lazarus' sister. But then he resolves to undo what death has done, what sin has done. He has the stone rolled away, and he speaks. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus does from death to life. And in this way, Jesus foreshadows the eighth and greatest miracle, his own resurrection, from death to life after his atoning blood and water shedding crucifixion on a cross. In other words, what this sign is telling us 
is that Christ alone can take on himself God's wrath, which leads to liberation and the healing promised in Isaiah because he is himself God, specifically a God who brings life from where there is none, a God who brings life from death itself. This is why John selected these seven signs, these seven miracles, and not the others. And this is why John arranged them in this specific order rather than just telling them to us randomly. John is communicating to us and teaching us on a level that we don't even comprehend. The best teachers teach explicitly and implicitly. We were taught explicitly the miracles and their meanings of Christ. But did you realize that as we went through the Gospel of John and looked at this story and the way that John has arranged his Gospel, he was teaching us implicitly the core narrative of the Gospel, that God's wrath will turn to his Son, that God will heal, that God himself will do these things, and the biggest proof that it worked is that he will not remain in the grave. If you can remember the seven miracles recorded in John, you can remember the core of the narrative of the gospel. How brilliant is that? How complex and deep and beautiful. Scripture is incredible. It is a masterpiece, a work of art, far beyond what we could comprehend. And this just goes to show that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture using brilliant writers as his medium to communicate to us always, it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. John has organized these miracles in such a way to communicate to us this incredible truth of the gospel. In fact, it gets even crazier than that. If you think about it, the miracles themselves and the way that John organizes them form a chiasm. So the first two miracles have to do with a cure for God's wrath. Miracle number three has to do with healing. Miracles number four and five had to do with the creator. Then miracle six is a healing again. And then miracles seven and eight, the two resurrections, are a cure for God's wrath, that he brings life out of death. Again, another, just, it's, it's insane when you think about the complexity and the intelligence and the richness behind here. I think this is why... John leaves the gospel story as he's exiting the room. He turns around and he says to us, hey, check out the miracles again, and just kind of leaves. And that's how his gospel ends. He wants us to go back and to look at the things, the signs that Jesus has done to show us that Jesus Christ is to be believed, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, in his signs, we may have life. Here at the beginning of the sermon, I, I, I said I wanted to close the Gospel of John in, in John's own way. And it turns out that, you know, and this is the great thing about John, his way is to defer to the way, in other words, Christ. That I don't think John's Gospel really ends with a, with, a, with a recap of the miracles. He just kind of says, like, this is why I selected those miracles. But it really ends with that command of that invitation we saw last week. You follow me. I mean, if there's going to be a last word in the gospel, it's probably Jesus. We should take those most seriously. We saw this last week, Christ's invitation to follow him and permission to unfollow the world. 
But I want us to notice something else too. This command to follow me, the way that John ends, bookends his gospel. Okay? So the, John gives, at the very beginning, the command to follow me to his new disciples, and he actually prefaces it with, what are you seeking? It's a, such a profound question, especially in our culture and day and age today. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? What do you desire? What do you want? Okay. So the Gospel of John begins with Jesus' command to follow me and ends with the command to follow me. That's a bookend. In, in a literary device, it means this is important because everything that happened between the first follow me and the last follow me has to do with the follow me. Why should we follow you, Jesus? 21 chapters of John. And then the invitation is given again. Everything in John culminates at this head. Do you believe? Then follow me. What a powerful invitation, especially when you consider this. Jesus did not change his voice when he issued the command, follow me. What I mean by that is this. Did you notice how the signs that Jesus performed, his miracles, were done? Mainly by speaking. Mainly by his words, by his voice. In Cana, he says, fill the jars with water. They turn to wine. Uh, and Cain again, he says, go to the official, your son will live. In Jerusalem, he says to the lame man, get up, take your bed, and walk. In Galilee, at the side of the mountain, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks, he spoke a blessing. On the Sea of Galilee, he says, it is I, do not be afraid. In Jerusalem, he says to the blind man, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And then outside, just uh, east of Jerusalem, he says to a dead Lazarus, come out, and he does. Words, 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 speaking, 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 voice, voice, voice. And now that same voice that performed all of those miracles, that executed the power of God itself, that same voice is asking us two questions. What are you seeking? Or one question, what are you seeking? And that same voice is issuing us a, an invitation. Follow me. In other words, the same voice, check this out, the same voice that told the lame man to walk and for Lazarus to return from the grave is inviting you to himself. The same power behind his miraculous signs and the commands that preceded them is also issuing for you an invitation, follow me. What are you seeking for? Who are you following? Are you looking for a sense of identity, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose? Are you looking for joy? happiness and fullness? Are you looking for security of love and affection and relationship? We all are. And we're all seeking all of those things. But what John is trying to communicate to us is that they can only be found in Christ. And only if we stop seeking in the world and following him. We find the truest and fullest sense of fullness and meaning and love in Christ himself. That every pursuit to find out who you really are, why you're here on this earth, what your purpose is, is found in Christ. That every episode of happiness and joy in this life are only temporary and pale in comparison the happiness and joy that we find in Christ. And that every sense of security in love that you've looked for on every date and every 
hand that you've held and you've looked for in every kiss is found in Christ. God, who, as John will later tell us in his epistle, is himself love. God doesn't merely love, he is love. So what are you seeking? You're probably seeking what we're all seeking. And John says, here it is. His name is Christ. What are you waiting for? Respond to his invitation. Follow me. And that voice will show you the miraculous. Let's pray. Father, what a gift and a treat it is to spend so much time in the gospel of our brother and your servant, John. We thank you for a faithful testimony of Christ's perfect, and, or per- perfect person and work and the faithful example of the witness of John. We thank you for everything that we have learned. In John, we thank you that the Holy Spirit has reformed our desires and our hearts to reorient them towards your desires. Father, I pray that as we leave John, we would be a kind of church that takes John's example by not merely passing on information that has been given to us about Jesus, but that we would also include ourselves in the story of redemption. That we would present your son's gospel in a way that also includes how it has affected us, just as we've seen John and Paul do. And that we would constantly be reminded of the signs that Jesus gave and how they pointed to the narrative of his redemption for your glory. That he has taken the wrath of God on himself to heal us, to liberate us as God himself. And that we can know with certainty that our salvation is purchased for and secured by faith alone because the tomb is empty. Father, let us be a church that heeds Christ's invitation to stop seeking in the world what cannot be found but only in the Creator, to follow Christ, in whose name that we pray.